Welcome to the Success in South Carolina podcast, where we will be hearing the untold stories of success from people in our community. These successful neighbors of ours will share their real-life philosophies and solutions for success to inspire us, educate us, and help us find peace, joy, and love, along with a purpose, a mission, and a vision for our lives. And I'm your host, Jonathan Peoples. Our guest today lives in Somerville, South Carolina. He is an award-winning community servant, leadership coach, and inspirational speaker who's worked with clients ranging from schools to nonprofits to Fortune 1000 companies globally. He has a Master's of Science in Organizational Leadership from John Hopkins University, and he is a pioneer in the art and science of leadership development. He challenges the prevailing ideas of authority and how it is applied in the workforce today. He's also the host of the Pursuit of Self-Actualization podcast, where he shares insights on how to become the best version of yourself. I am so excited to chat with our guest and share his wisdom with our listeners. Welcome to the show, a new friend of mine, Dante DiBattista. What a beautiful introduction. Thank yeah. You. Welcome to the show, Dante. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Hey, Dante, leadership is very near and dear to my heart. And I'm a huge fan of many of the great teachers of leadership, such as John Maxwell and Simon Sinek. But leadership has evolved and it's continuing to change in the workplace and in our everyday lives. What qualities or fundamentals of true, genuine leadership are still valid from the teachings of the greats? And in what ways are we playing a new game? Wow, that is a phenomenal question. So the first thing I want to talk about is empathy. I think empathy is the most important trait or fundamental ability that a leader can have, the ability to understand how people are feeling, why they're feeling that way, empathize with them, hear them for what they're saying and and the meaning behind it, and being able to address those concerns holistically. I think what that is has always remained true. I think a lot of leaders, a lot of people preach that, uh, but we're learning more and more uh, in this kind of like new phase of leadership that you're talking about, that as much as people have talked the talk, they haven't really walked the walk. And we're continuing to learn more and more about what empathy really looks like in practice. And that's why when you when you read my introduction, I talk about the prevailing thoughts of authority. And we've done, there's been a tremendous amount of research in the field of psychology about how we as humans interact with authority structures and authority figures. And a lot of leaders want to feel like they support their people, but it's really hard within the realm of your authority in an organization. So the analogy I always use is you have the sharpest teeth and the sharpest claws in the organization. So you might come up to someone and say, hey, how can I help you? What do you need? I want to support you. And they're afraid to tell you because if you at all react the wrong way, you're the one that's the most, you're the most, you're the biggest threat to them, right? Their job security. You're the one that makes decisions. You have the authority to cut them loose. And that's something that you can't just ask a question and overcome, right? You have to create a culture where you kind of, you have to be willing to file down your own claws and your own teeth and what be willing to sacrifice some of the benefits and comfort that come with an authority position in order to really lead people in a way where you can connect on that level. So how does a great leader of an organization develop that? Because imp- I feel like there's there's two things, right? Number one, some of these leaders just don't have a great d- degree of empathy to begin with. And then even those that do don't necessarily display that empathy very well or communicate that empathy very well. How do we overcome both those things? That's it's a complicated question, and it's gonna definitely gonna take time. So I will say a couple of things. One, I think the way people move up within organizations, we don't reward those behaviors very well. So it comes down to even how we decide who gets promotions. Uh, So a very common thing we see in organizations that I work with is when they post a job for a manager position and people apply, they pick the person who's best their current job, person who's most efficient at whatever task it might be. Let's say it's a sales professional. They have the highest sales number. They naturally are going to be the best manager. And a lot of research has shown that's not true at all. They're very good at their job and that's great. They should be rewarded for being great at that job not given new responsibilities that don't align with that position. And then 
what happens often is like the most hungry people end up being the ones that move up into leadership positions. And while that's really important, it's not beneficial to the well-being of people that work with them and around them. And going back to your question as to how we kind of develop that within organizations, it's an entire it's an entire paradigm shift. It goes into how we recruit people, how we promote people, how we develop leaders, how we measure the success of leaders. So as you mentioned, I'm a leadership coach. When I do coaching with leaders, I don't just say, hey, we're going to set these goals and you're going to come back and report to me and tell me if you've achieved these goals. I ask them for all their direct reports, contact information. I'm not going to ask you if you did what I told you to do or what I advise you to do. I'm going to ask your team, hey, has your supervisor done one-on-ones like we've talked about? Have they asked these questions? Have you Since we started six months ago, do you trust your supervisor more than you did prior to him coming to him or her coming to me for coaching. And if we're not seeing those results, that real tangible impact from the people they're supervising, then I'm not doing my job. And going back to how that relates to leadership, I tell supervisors, you should do the same thing. You shouldn't just look at overall performance and say, okay, we're doing our job. That's great. If I'm a vice president, I have directors that report to me and then probably managers underneath them. I'm not just asking the director. I'm going to the manager. I'm going two levels below. Have you ever heard of the outward mindset by any chance? No, tell me about it. It's a it's a great book uh, by the Harbinger Institute, and they they kind of talk about this perspective. And I never, um, I always thought about it this way, but I never had a really good way of describing it until I read that book. So I definitely recommend anyone out there to read the outward mindset. Um, so it essentially, you want as a leader to make other people's goals your goal. I am equally invested in how you define success as how I define success. Oftentimes, again, when you're a vice president, you're a CEO, you're thinking of the higher level strategic thinking, you're thinking about the direction of the organization, uh, opportunities and threats in your environment, you do the SWOT analysis, you do all those things. But at the end of the day, if you just communicate a mission and vision to the organization and just expect them to adopt it because you, you said so and just follow you blindly, then you're not building future leaders. Right. You want them to just comply with you and you're not making them a part of the general vision and making it, you're not build, buy, getting buy-in from them and getting investment from them. And so if you understand the mission and vision of the people in your organization and you have alignment with their personal goals and the organization's goals and you make them almost one, it's so much easier to move forward as a group. And so that's why I encourage leaders to understand who's in your department, who are the people around you, how does work blend with their life? Uh, I don't believe in work-life balance because balance implies that there are two opposing forces that you have to control. Like if you think about walking on a balance beam, right? Or like the picture of a balance, right? Like the scale Mm -hmm. of justice, it's two opposing forces and you have to apply strength to maintain a sense of balance. But work and life should not be opposing forces. They shouldn't be two two opposite ends. They should be they should work cohesively together. And so, how do we as leaders see people as whole people? Understand how work impacts their lives and make the best possible work experience for them, so that they can come and bring their whole selves to work and maximize their capabilities. And if you ask people if they get to bring their whole selves to work and do their best work every day, most people will tell you that's not true. Right, right. I love that uh, work-life balance picture that you put there because I've I've heard it put many different ways that you know you shouldn't be chasing balance with with your work and life that it should be more of an integration. But the yeah. fact that you're you're talking about that they're opposing forces that makes a lot of sense. And what you said earlier about someone being promoted because they're very good at their job, well, then they get promoted up until a point where they're no longer good at their job, right? Yeah. And then you can't demote that person. So all you have is just a, a bunch of middle management or upper management or people that are just horrible at their jobs uh, that you can no longer demote or, or anything like that. So that's where I love your your theory of it's not necessarily just the person that's best at their job, but the person who has empathy and these other gifts that would that would fit be befitting of a leader. Yeah, I absolutely I wanna I wanna emphasize that that final appointment. Like empathy is the one that I named, but there's a large, there's a wide variety. There's a a list of skills that you could talk about that really aren't required of an individual performer 
when you're an individual contributor, you come in, you do your job, you do your tasks. There's a lot of things that you can be excellent at and do that role that don't align at all with management. And empathy is the one that I named because I think it's the bedrock for all of those other things, but there is a much longer list. It's not just being an empathetic person. I want to make sure I highlight that, but I, I would consider empathy the most important uh, trait, characteristic. And um, I also call it a skill, applying empathy in an emotionally intelligent way. It's a skill set that you have to kind of develop and work through. Sure. So if empathy is a skill set, how does someone, just the average Joe, how does Jonathan Peoples, how does Dante DiBattista develop that skill of empathy? It's a great question. And this goes back to what I said earlier with our mindset. It's other people who get to judge how well that you, how well you're building that skill. So for me, what I always do is I ask the people around me to rate me on a scale of one to 10 when it comes to things like listening, communicating my needs. When I ask for, um, I also ask for strengths and weaknesses and things like that in general, but I want a very specific list of opportunities to grow as it relates to building strong relationships with people. And that goes back to, like I said, listening and communicating my needs. And every time I meet with someone or we collaborate on a project, we always review, hey, what could we have done differently? How could how could your voice have been heard more often? How could you have been empowered to perform better on this project? And I think it's going back and asking other people over and over and over and over again, what could I have done better? And over time, people will trust that you're actually asking for the right reasons. Because like I said before, you might ask someone, hey, give me some feedback. And they're not, they're too afraid to tell you the truth. So for me, when it comes to building that that skill set, that that strength when it comes to emotional intelligence and empathy, it's always asking other people, hey. How did how well did I listen to you there? If we have a meeting and I go back and we we came up with a strategy, we're gonna implement it. I want to first ask, how well did you feel like I listened to you during this meeting? Did we come up with a solution because I said it's a good solution and you just wanted to agree with me and we moved on? Or do you actually feel like your ideas were heard, your ideas were considered, and we implemented some of your ideas? Do you feel like you had partial ownership? And I think that sense of ownership is really important. When people feel like they have a sense of ownership on the task they perform, it's because they feel like they trust the person who's leading the project. And it's because they know that person cares enough about them to empathize with them and their ideas and making sure they feel heard. Gotcha. And empathy is not necessarily the new thing. It's like you said, it's kind of a foundational or bedrock thing. What has changed? What has shifted in the leadership game? What What's the new game we're playing? I think it's a reflection of our entire culture. We have seen a huge culture shift. It was something that was happening pre-COVID. And I know people are tired of hearing about COVID, but it was something that was happening pre-COVID, but I think COVID really accelerated it. When people there have been a lot of conversations about what work-life balance looks like, what what is a more healthy lifestyle. And as and again, we're we're both in South Carolina, which is obviously in the United States. So when we talk about the culture of the United States. We see we have seen a huge shift from, hey, everyone, you wake up, you go to work at this time, you never question authority. You never, when someone tells you what to do, you say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, you get the job done, that's it. And I feel like we're seeing more of an almost egalitarian approach to how work happens. I think you see the same thing in like uh, remote work, people wanting more, more balance, more freedom with their schedule and all those things. So I don't think leadership has changed. I think the environment in which we operate has changed. And as a result, we we have new responsibilities. And empathy was always a thing. And, you know, empathy is not some grand discovery from Dante DiBattista. You know, obviously it's not even close to true. But I do think that because I'm a part of the younger generation, one thing I didn't mention, I'm only 28 years old. So I'm still very young and I'm, I'm really lucky to have found great mentors in my life early on and that have taught me a tremendous amount, which have given me the opportunity to do some of the things that I'm doing now. And um, we've talked about empathy for for decades on decades, but it just looks so much different today than it did years ago. And now people, particularly leaders, have to swallow their pride in a way they never had to before. Like I remember growing up, I was in like that weird generation. I grew up in the, you know, in the early 90s when like I remember you never questioned authority ever period. Like it wasn't a thing. 
And when I was in school as a student, I was actually a horrible student. I did not do well in school growing up. I actually graduated in the bottom 25% of my high school class. Like I failed out of college my first time around. It wasn't exactly like I was a great student all the time. But I also read another book that I'm sure you've read or other people who listen to this have read uh, called Good to Great by Jim Collins. Mm-hmm. And in that book, they talk about the culture of organizations that really thrived over long periods of time, embraced conflict, and embraced people questioning authority. You should ask why. Why are we doing this? Why is this the right thing to do? Why do you think you're the right person to make this decision? Why, why, why? Asking that question a bunch of times. That thing that we were told to not do as kids, I never lost. Like no matter how many times my parents, you know, try to beat it out of me or whatever, like I never lost the desire to ask why. And it's become my superpower, honestly, as a professional. And so I think I'm just really lucky to have been born in the time that I've been born in, have the personality that has kind of carried over. And now we're kind of seeing this shift into allowing younger or earlier career professionals to ask why and to question authority. And I think that's that's where this new level of empathy comes into play, where we have to be able to swallow our pride and say, you know what? Instead of getting mad that they're questioning my authority, let me hear them out and let me get them the opportunity to speak up. And the more voices we have, the more ideas we have, and the better opportunity we have to be creative and do things that other people are doing. Yeah, I agree, Dante. I feel like a lot of American history, especially post-industrial revolution, has has brought up this authoritarian leadership where, like you said, just do what you're told, fall in line, don't ask questions. Um, and I do also understand that here recently, and I'm very, very grateful that my parents always taught me to question my teacher, right? If my teacher's saying something that doesn't make sense, ask why, you know, don't just accept things because someone said, oh, well, because I told you so. I kind of got in a little bit of trouble back when I was in high school because I, you know, asked my teacher, thought my teachers were saying things that weren't necessarily true or whatever. Um, But you have these people that still have this authoritarian leadership built into their DNA, built into their culture. They grew up in it. And if people have that assumption that leadership comes from age or authority, how can someone lead people that are older or more established? How do you break through those bonds? Because Dante, you you admitted yourself, you're of the younger generation. How can you teach someone leadership who's been in a leadership position for decades? Yeah. So one of my favorite stories, I love telling it. It's like, it's my pride and joy of leadership development experiences. I get that pushback a lot. So obviously I'm going to CEOs, VPs who have been in the game for a long time. And I say, Hey, listen, um, your organization, you're performing at this level based on, you know, Mark, I obviously do like a lot of market research and I, I draft like a, a thorough value proposition. And I say, based on where you're at in your industry, based on the size of your organization, the rate of growth and all those things, based on the average age of the people in your workforce, it seems like you're going to have a lot of retirement. You're going to need a lot of leadership development for your future, the future of your organization. Here's the value I bring. And one of the one time I had um, I had already started working with this organization. I was doing a workshop. And there was a vice president in the room who had been a VP longer than I'd been alive. It was 27. It was a year ago, 27 years old. And this person had been a vice president for 27, 28, 29 years. And he was like, I've been a vice president longer than you've been alive. I've been leading longer than you've been alive. Why should I listen to you? And I said, well, sir, I've been breathing my entire life. That does not make me an expert on the respiratory system. Just because you've been doing something for a really long time does not mean that you're great at it. It just means that whatever habits you have, they're deeply ingrained. And if they're bad ones, then we're going to have to work a lot harder, change them. So all the time, this person was a vice president of engineering. And by the way, I failed out of engineering school. I am not questioning the intelligence of this individual by any stretch of the imagination. I admire this person for their success for all the, and I, I told them, I was like, I, why I love what I do is I learn more than I teach. It's a part of the job. I have to learn more. Like I right now have a client that's in the insurance industry, never worked with insurance in my life, but Mm -hmm. they have a problem and they're 99% of the way of solving it. They just need 
different perspective, someone to give them that last 1%. That means they need to teach me 99% of context for me to understand how to draft a solution. So I learn so much more than I teach, but that little bit that I teach is so high value that I, I get the opportunity to do what I do. And so that's that's what's so fun about the work that I do. But I'm saying all that to say that when I spoke to this individual and I made that comment, he said, all the time that you spent in your career learning engineering, I've spent relentlessly studying people and how people work and how we can move people and behavior forward. And another example similar to this, I was recently speaking at an event. It was a conference with, you know, HR officers, you know, uh, CHROs, a chief, uh, you know, C-suite level executives that were in the HR learning and development space. And we did an exercise is kind of a little bit learning and development oriented, but I kind of tied in some leadership development just to kind of showcase how my, my workshops are structured. And I specifically structured this workshop to highlight the power of confirmation bias. And at the end of the workshop, you have all these professionals, their job is to lead people, to convince them to follow this vision that they've created and to change behavior, right? Learning and development training, that's all it is, is trying to change behavior. So that's their job as professionals. I do this confirmation bias exercise. And at the end, I ask them, how many of you changed your mind? None of them did. And I'm like, your, your job is to change people's minds. And you, you realize how hard it is to change your own. Yet you have no patience when other people don't listen to you the way you want them to. Mm. And all I'm asking you is to give them the same level of empathy and respect that you want from me when I do these workshops. And so when you put them in that position, they're like, oh man, like, you know, I, they're so used to being kind of, and I want to emphasize too, that I'm a little bit stubborn and hardheaded. I ask why I push the, I push the envelope. It's kind of how I've gotten to where I've gotten and why I get to do what I do. And I love it. But at the same time, I understand that there's, there's a boundary. There is a, a very sensitive boundary between being stubborn and not listening and making people push harder to convince you something is true. Because when you ask people why, 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 you get more and more information. But if you're the kind of person that immediately shuts them out and never listens, you're not getting any more information. You're just wasting both parties' time. So don't ask why if you're not prepared to listen to the answer. Yeah. So in order to be a great leader, I feel like there's got to be a balance between that level of confidence and hard-headedness you said, but also this humility that you're willing to accept a new change of mind. How do you strike that balance, Dante? Phenomenal question. I think results speak for themselves. And I, when I say results, I mean, how does turnover look in your organization, particularly your department? Going back to that vice president of engineering, their department has some of the highest turnover in the organization. And when you say, oh, now mind you, there is some, the part, the job that they lead does tend in the industry they were in. I don't want to give away too much information. So I'm definitely not trying to call this person out in a negative way. Um, the industry they're in, the people they lead, there is generally higher turnover, but theirs was above average. And it comes down to the fact that this person would say, oh, I, I take critical, I take criticism well and all those other things. But in reality, they they didn't. And so if you're the kind of leader that takes criticism well, that ask why and people actually answer and give you real feedback and they stay, then you're doing well. But if you're the kind of person that says, well, I always ask for feedback and no one tells me anything and any feedback I get is always positive and your turnover is really high. Well, then, you know, they're not giving you, they're not telling you the truth. And I personally think the, the best way to tell how strong a relationship is, is how often someone gives you critical feedback. And when I say critical feedback, I don't mean harsh, negative, like, you know, calling you names. I mean, like, really valid feedback. Like, hey, Jonathan, you know, we had that meeting and I, you know, I think you did these things well, but there's this one comment you made that really struck me the wrong way. If someone can pull you aside one-on-one and have that honest conversation with you, that speaks volumes about the culture and climate you created within your teams. But if that never happens, because you know they're going to leave and talk about it when you're not around. You know right. it's happening. 
most people know you have a meeting with your people, you give them some kind of, I wouldn't call it bad news, but you tell them something that's probably going to be uncomfortable. Hey, we have to change this process. We've been doing it this way for 10 years, but you know, something in the industry changed, the law changed, or we discovered there was a fault in something we're doing. We have to change. No one likes change. If they're not going to express frustrations to you, they're going to do it at the water cooler. They're going to do it on the Slack channel that you're not in or whatever it might be. So if they can say it to your face, that to me is the ultimate, you know, uh, testimony that there's an, a sense of trust in your, in your relationships. That's a great uh, analogy there too. It's just, it's an eye opener as a leader when you have someone come in and approach you about something. But if you aren't having anyone approach you and getting any critical feedback, then like you said, the proof's in the pudding. Or if you're not getting anything, that means that you probably aren't, you don't have ears to hear it. So people just aren't bringing it to you. That's great to hear. Uh, So let's, let's shift real quick, Dante. I'd like to discuss leader from leadership to success. Uh, and I know that I feel like the two are intertwined very well, but how do you define success? Yeah. So to me, success is a sense of, of peace and pride in what I do. And I think both of those, those ideas are really important. I talk about mental health a lot in everything that I do. I think the reason that I'm so passionate about my work is I don't just work on leadership development to help businesses thrive. I want happier families. I want everyone who listens to this episode to think about how many people come home from work angry or frustrated about how their day went and how that impacts the children that are waiting at home for their parents. I don't know how many people are listening to this have ever experienced being a little afraid of dad coming home from work. Because if he's had a bad day, you're going to have a bad night, right? Like there's a lot of people out there who can empathize with that feeling. And if we create work environments where people don't go home feeling that way, we create happier families. And we don't just we don't just do this work for the sake of making a little more money to live in a nicer house. Uh, there's there's no point in living in a nicer house if everyone inside it's miserable, right? So I I work at what I do because I want to help create happier and healthier families. And it's way it's it's much more than than business. So when I, we go into what success looks like for me, I talk about the on my podcast, the pursuit of self actualization. I talk about being selflessly selfish. I take the best care of me because that means my wife gets the best husband, my future kids get the best father, my parents get the best son. Right, that's my goal is to be to be the best version of me in each relationship that I have. And so when I define success, I don't just look at it through the lens of business. Sure, if I make an extra million dollars next year, I'll probably be pretty excited about, you know, the way that my business is going. But if I look at that lens and then I discover in the process that my wife is less happy with me, my parents are disappointed, I didn't spend much time with them, my siblings feel like I'm not giving them the support they need, that's not success. So I look at who I am through the lens of every relationship that I have. And if I'm proud of how I serve other people and I'm at peace with the decisions I make, because sometimes you're going to have to compromise. Like there's only 24 hours in a day. You can only do so much for so many people. But if I'm at peace with the choice that I, choices that I've made, then I'm very happy. And I would consider that success. I like it. What a... Uh... What do you feel like is your secret to success, Dante? What's the, if you could just choose one thing of here's something that I do or some thought that I have or a habit, whatever it may be, what's that secret for Dante? So it's going to be uh, a one, a thought process that leads to different habits. So I'm going to talk about the thought process first. I have an unconditional, unwavering belief in myself. There is no amount of failure that will ever occur in my life that will convince me that I am not going to win. And by win, I don't mean, you know, defeat others. I don't mean, I don't see life as like a zero sum game and every time I win, someone else loses. I th- like I said before, I think my victories translate to victories for others. And so there's an unwavering belief in myself. I will always feel that way. So one of the habits that I've formed that I've created to kind of help uh, instill that in myself, I journal every day. I have a journal. And what I do is I write down 
positive affirmations that specifically contradict insecurities of mine. So every single day I think about, you know, when I talked earlier about pride and peace, when am I not proud of myself and when am I not at peace? If I'm, if I'm struggling to sleep at night, what's keeping me up? What am I thinking about? And I write down those things. And so then the next day I look at my list of things that were, I was insecure about yesterday and I find, and I start training my mind to find evidence that those things aren't true. So an example, I've always had this insecurity that I'm lazy. I don't know why. I've never really been a crazy, lazy person. I do sleep a lot. And I used to think that was a bad thing, but it turns out sleep is like a superpower. It's great for your brain. And so I prioritize sleep. And I used to think that made me lazy because, you know, you, uh, I don't know if you like, you know, scroll through social media a lot, but you'll see like these things like hustle 24 seven and all these like ridiculous, just like impossible standards of what hustle and success looks like. And so I would think like, oh, like, man, you know, I need my eight hours. Does that make me lazy? And it's not true at all. So I started writing things that contradict my insecurities. Not only am I not lazy, I am one of the most driven people I know. And that is a reflection of two things. One, that I'm not lazy. But two, I also need to continue to surround myself with people that are more driven than me in -hmm. some ways. And so I write down goals. Um, One. I'm going to be, I'm going to give myself a little more grace and I'm going to focus more on the things that I do a lot of. So instead of saying, oh, I'm lazy, I accomplished this, 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 and like a long list of things today. And I remind myself, oh, I'm not lazy. A lazy person wouldn't have accomplished all those things. And then going back to finding people that are more driven than me, I always make it a goal to meet one new person that I can learn from every single day. And when you create uh, that mindset that you are going to Train your brain to look for evidence that you're doing things right because we have a negativity bias. It's well documented in psychology research across Mm -hmm. various fields, whether it be cognitive psychology or or whatever it might be. So we all have a negativity bias. And so training our minds to see the positive thing is something you have to actively do. And so I, I do that consistently. And I also, I always look for new people to learn from. And I see every person in my life, no matter how old, no matter what their background is, whether they have more money than me, less money than me, whatever it might be, I see everyone as a source of knowledge and wisdom that I don't have. If you've been alive for 60 years, you have 60 years of experiences that I don't have. And you've probably learned a lot that I never learned before. So I make it my goal to always learn something from everyone. And because I want the, I want people to see me that way. Going back to what we talked about earlier, I don't want people always telling me, oh, you're younger than me. You obviously are dumber than me. And there's nothing you can teach me. I want to be true with the respect that I can bring value and I can teach you something. But if I want that, I must be willing to do that for every single person. So even kids, like I think kids teach us so much. I used to be a teacher uh, and like kids are just balls of like pure wisdom that we almost condition out of it. And so wow. I love listening to, to children and and like, because I mean, are, are you a parent? Do you have children? No. Okay. So when I don't, I don't either, but I, when I talk to parents, they always say like, yeah, like my kid said the craziest thing the other day. And then you hear it and you're like, why did I forget that? You know, like they, I feel like kids have a great way of kind of bringing you back to earth. Um, And so like a very simple wisdom almost. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, we overcomplicate things sometimes. Mm -hmm. So I spend a lot of time trying to be a mentor and serve in the community and and work in schools and and all those kinds of things um, because kids keep you humble. Kids really do have a way of bringing you back to earth. But I would say all of those things as it relates to one, practices and habits, journaling. I know positive affirmations sound really corny, but if you're very intentional about how you do it, um, it, it's really powerful. And then if you find ways to spend time with a diverse group of people Older, your age, younger, spend, there's the rule of 33%. You should spend 33% of your day being a mentor, 33% of your day being a peer, and 33% of your day being mentored. And if you can find that balance of always learning from people who know something that you don't, sharing it with people who are similar similar minded, and um, trying to teach to someone who may not be as far along as you in certain areas, that's how you one maximize how much you learn and two get much better at teaching. And that's how I think my career has kind of exploded into what it has is I've 
even from a young age, saw myself as someone who could educate others. And as weird as it sounds, practicing that all the time is kind of allowed me to become an educator full time in its own way. Yeah. And I heard something similar from a uh, a Christian mentor of mine talked about always have a, a Paul, a Barnabas and a Timothy in your life. Right. The Paul is someone who can mentor you. The Timothy is someone you can mentor. And the 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 I said, Paul is someone you that mentors you. Timothy, is someone you can mentor. And then the Barnabas is someone that you can encourage each other uh, as you move forward through life. So I love those. Uh, the the 33% rule. Never heard it put that way. Jump back into affirmations because I am a firm believer in affirmations. I love them. I feel like a lot of people use them incorrectly, though, Dante. The way you mentioned them seemed, I, I want to kind of dive more into that because some people see this sure. negative thought in their life or this fear or whatever it is. And instead of seeking evidence of real things to combat that, sometimes they just speak the opposite of it, right? Like if they think they're lazy and they go, I'm not lazy or I am whatever, instead of giving themselves examples of the in their own life. And if they just simply speak the words, but there's no real belief or conviction behind them, does it really change anything? Right. What are your thoughts on all that, Dante? Yeah. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm so glad you asked the question. So I, I there's an exercise that I do with, uh, with people that I coach and there's kind of what people consider like intrusive thoughts. Have you ever heard of this concept of like an intrusive thought? It just kind of, it just kind of pops out of nowhere and you can't let go of it. And um, anyway, so I'll give you an example uh, I have a friend, his name's Ryan. This, this guy is like a lightning bolt of inspiration. He's he's incredible. Um, and I had I did a similar workshop and he was in it. And he talked about like the dishes, right? He always gets mad at himself when the dishes aren't done. He thinks like, oh, like I'm a slob, da, da, da. I'm like, Ryan, like, can you just write a list of everything you did today? And like the list is like a hundred items long. The dude like ran a marathon at 4 a.m., like came back. And you know, I mean, the dude's like just an absolute workhorse, but yeah. he gets like hung up on the idea the dishes aren't done. And I'm like, do you realize how much power and weight you give to things you didn't accomplish and how you diminish your own accomplishments? We all do this. It's, it's, a, like I mentioned earlier, we have this like negativity bias, this cognitive bias. And once we accomplish something, we make it seem like anyone can do it. And it's so interesting how that works, right? Like, oh, well, you know, I'm not that special. If I can do this, anyone can do it. And it's like, okay, yeah, maybe anyone could do it, but you're the one that did it. It's not about who could do what. I believe in the potential of all people, but potential has to be consistently developed into a skill set, into a talent, into a habit. Um, but going back anyway, I apologize. I went on a little tangent going back into the, that's the, the intrusive thought. habit. Yeah, it, exactly. So going back into that habit, um, are you familiar with David Goggins by any chance? Yeah. 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 So he's a, he's a little rough around the edges and the way he communicates. So if you are anyone who's listening, if you're not comfortable with like real vulgar language, I'd encourage you to not listen to David Goggins, but right. if you're comfortable with that kind of like rugged approach to things, um, I definitely encourage you to listen to David Goggins, but he had, uh, he did a, an interview and he talked about this dark room that he had. He calls it the dark room. I call it the echo chamber. So every once in a while, we'll get into this mindset of maybe we made a mistake or the dishes aren't done or whatever it might be. And we start thinking about all, all of these things that we do wrong. And we, we start going down this almost like rabbit hole of negativity where we just like harp on ourselves and even if we don't do it for long periods of time, we do it. We again, we give so much weight to these negative things. What I want people, the reason I do the affirmations is I want to train the brain to interrupt that thought process as soon as possible, because it is the way the brain works, the way thoughts work. Every thought is not only the response to a previous thought, but it's also the trigger for the next one. It's a cycle. And I, I treat it like systems. You can see my logo in the background. I have a gear. And the way I see it is every, every output of one system is an input into another. Mm. And that's why it's so important that we understand that when you have these thoughts, you do have control over ending them as soon as possible and training your brain to find evidence. So going back to what you said, 
when I write these things down, if I write down that I'm organized, for example, my affirmations, I'm organized. And I write down examples of when I'm organized, ways that I'm organized. And if I can't find evidence, I create it. So I'm in my office right now. You, it looks kind of neat. My bookshelf back here looks, but I can see a box of unpacked books in the corner to my left. Sure. If I say I'm organized and I can't think of evidence, I'm unpacking that box. I'm not doing anything in my day until I unpack that box. And so I'll unpack the box. And then I write down, I unpack the box. I go in the kitchen. Are the dishes done? Yes. I go in my journal. Dishes are done. If they're not, I do the dishes and then I write it. And so now I'm training my brain to look for evidence that I am organized rather than look for evidence that I'm not. And over time, we start leveraging what we call confirmation bias that I mentioned earlier. You split the switch. So instead of my brain always finding evidence, confirming that I'm unorganized, I'm training my brain to always find evidence that I am organized. And all of a sudden, you have this positive perspective on yourself, but you also are really living it. You're not just saying it for the sake of saying it and the conditions around you don't validate it. You're creating an environment that does. Um, and then the book Atomic Habits talks a lot about habit stacking, yeah, where every behavior is a cue to another and all that kind of stuff. So uh, for people who are trying to kind of do something where they're trying to change their habits, I definitely encourage the book Atomic Habits as well. Yeah, this is great. Uh, I love the the stacking. I feel like so many people have, like you said, we've got this negative bias, first of all, and then you've got confirmation bias. And then you've got the comparison game that people like they, yeah. they're on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok and they're comparing someone else's highlight reel to my valley that I'm going through right now. Right. So uh, this is where I love your your podcast, The Pursuit of Self-Actualization. How does the pursuit of self-actualization integrate with leadership? How do they play a role with each other? Yeah, great. I love that question. I'm so glad you asked that question. It's a like question no one's ever asked me before. And I actually get questions like, why do you have this like psychology podcast, like self-help? And then you do leadership professionally. They don't line up. And I would argue it's the exact opposite. Um, you have to learn. One of my mentors, uh, his name is Dr. Arthur Schwartz. He had this leadership institute that he was director of. And on the wall, they had three kind of like tiers of leadership or like the three pillars of leadership. It's leading self, leading others, leading change. You must first mm -hmm. learn to lead yourself before you can lead others. And that is why I go back and do that confirmation bias with leaders that exercise. And when no one changes their mind, I'm like, look around. If you are not capable of changing your own mind, how are you ever going to be capable of changing the mind of others? Mm. And if you are not capable of changing the mind of others, how are you ever going to change the direction this organization is heading in? And so people look around and they're like, oh, that's... That's it. Like that's that's where everything that's where everything kind of falls apart. We have these grand visions, these grand ideas, but they all kind of fall apart because we are not willing to change ourselves. And so I teach the what I believe I teach, how I describe what I teach is I I use science, I use real validated research driven practices to to share the science of self transformation and change. So that you can you can do that for other people. And I consider leadership, uh, great leadership is contagious. If your leadership itself is not contagious, then you have to call into question how much, how much you're really leading. Because great leaders create other great leaders. I know you've probably had this in your life. You've had one person who's been a supervisor, mentor, someone who's impacted you in a way. And you're like, I want to I have that impact on other people. The way this person makes me feel about myself, the way this person, the way I feel when I'm around this person, the person I am in their presence, I want other people to feel like this. That's contagious, right? It just, they just spread it. And now you're yeah. like, how do I do that? And so that Dr. Arthur Schwartz was that person for me. Uh, and so that's, that's where self-actualization and leadership come into play. And I call it the pursuit of self-actualization for two reasons. One, it's a never ending journey. You'll never get there. It's this, it's this ghost that you'll chase. You'll never catch. 
and that's okay. And that's actually really important because of the way the human brain is designed, we are goal-driven, a goal-driven species. When you look at the biology of our brain and the circuitry, we have way more resources associated with pursuing a goal than the reward system. The reward system in our brain is very small. No reward will ever match the pursuit. So you might as well just fall in love with the pursuit. And the reason I did the pursuit of self-actualization is because I think the pursuit of hap- the pursuit of happiness is actually unhealthy because yeah. life is not meant to be happy all the time. You are going to be in horrendous, unfortunate circumstances at some point in your life. Some people more often than others, and I know that's not fair, but at the same time, if you only pursue happiness, you will always be disappointed because life mm-hmm. is not always happy. But the goal should not be to be happy 24-7 because circumstances might not allow that. The goal should be proud of the version you are in the moment. So if I'm in a situation where uh, I'm in the waiting room of a hospital because someone I love is in a, it was in a car wreck or something like that, I can't change that. I can't be happy about that. But I know there are people I love in that waiting room who are afraid of, for that same person. What can I do to support those people? That's the only thing I should focus on. How can I be the best version of me waiting in, in a hospital ER, hoping my friend's okay, taking care of their parents, calling their aunt and uncle and making sure they have food if, you know, because whatever I can do to support that family, being the best version of me in that moment is all I can do. And I think that's a way better way to approach life than just pursuing this idea of happiness. Wow, Dante, you've spoken volumes right there with that uh, pursuit of self-actualization. I love that you uh, how you contrast that with the pursuit of happiness because you're right life has its ups and downs it has its hills and valleys and it's it's a never-ending journey i i know that uh you know i speak to some other people even even in speaking with my wife when we when we're talking and sometimes you when you're going through the valley of life you say i thought we had i thought we had been done with these valleys but they're never there right beyond this peak is another valley in order to get to the next peak of life. You have to go through a valley to get to the next peak. It's just part of life. So I love that you call it the pursuit of self-actualization because even on your way down into the valley, you can still become your better self. You can still learn and grow and, uh, and change. And I love how you talked about leadership as being able to lead yourself first because if you can't change yourself, how can you ever impact change in other people or impact change in society as a whole? You've you've given us volumes, Dante. I appreciate it. Let's jump into. Uh, we're going to wrap up here. I want to do a little promo for Dante and what he does professionally. Uh, how do you help companies develop this leadership? Is it a one-time event? Is it an ongoing engagement? What does that process look like? Yeah, I appreciate you asking that question. I offer a suite of services. So first, I offer leadership coaching where I'll do one-on-one coaching with organizations. Sometimes I'll hire a brand new CEO after dramatically firing the last one. There's kind of this fragmented culture. People are afraid. So the next CEO is going to have to do things right early. And oftentimes, like you mentioned earlier, the learning process it, it sometimes involves being wrong, making mistakes, being vulnerable. But when you're a new CEO, being too vulnerable and acknowledging that you're not 100% sure what you're doing is not exactly how you're going to bring that group together. Right. So having a third-party person outside the organization that that CEO can go to and say, hey, look, maybe in above my head right now, I don't know what to do. My, my uh, senior leadership team does not get along. I want to help. I want to do all these things. I just need someone outside the organization to kind of give me a different perspective and help walk me through how I can really bring this team together. So I offer the one-on-one coaching. And then I can do, like you mentioned earlier, it can be a one-time event. I do public speaking. I'll travel and go to conferences. Uh, If you want to put together like a leadership development conference, you can hire me and I'll do all of it. I'll do the event planning. I'll be a facilitator. I'll hire other facilitators if that's something we're interested in. I'll plan an entire leadership development offsite for the organization. And then sometimes I'll do consulting where instead of me being a one-on-one coach or me coming in and doing workshops either on a one, you know, one-time basis or, you know, a couple of times a year, I'll also come in and say, look, some organizations, they have people that they want to do leadership development workshops. So instead of bringing me in and having me do the training and paying me over and over and over again to come, 
hire me to do uh, to work with some of your subject matter experts in your organization. I'll build a curriculum. I'll help you design the program. I'll train your people to run the program and then I'll leave. And you can run the program for years and years and years and years and never have to pay me again. So there's the coaching, there's the training, and then there's the consulting. Gotcha. And is there a specific type of industry or environment or special? Because you mentioned one, like if there's a huge shift in leadership, then you can jump in there and help the new CEO one-on-one. What are other, uh, what what I would call uh, hot button things that might have someone looking for you to help their company out? Yeah. So organizations that realize they have an aging senior leadership team or aging company. So different industries have different problems, of course. I've worked in the utility industry, for example, which by nature of it, it's rather kind of regulated. People who enter the industry, don't. there's not a lot of like cross-functional skills, right? It's mostly like it exists within this bubble and there's not really much else you can do outside of that industry. So as a result, there's an aging population. Uh, so this one organization I worked with, there was 300 employees, they lost over 500 years of experience to retirement in one year because they have an aging workforce. And because there wasn't a lot of turnover, there wasn't a lot of other opportunities to leave. People stay there and retire there. But the problem with that is, is now you're losing more experience than you can ever gain. Yeah. And now you have to prepare a lot of people for leadership positions in a really short period of time. So people reach out to me because they realized, oh, in five years, our entire senior leadership team is going to be retired. We're going to promote people to VPs who have never been VPs before. We're going to promote people to directors. And it kind of cascades all the way down. Mm. So we're really going to have this huge shift. And it's important that we do this right. And so we want all this leadership development and leadership training uh, for these people. So either big drastic changes at the senior leadership level or we realize that we're going to have a lot of new young leaders and we want to make sure they're prepared. Okay. Two gotcha. kind of scenarios. All right. So if you're looking for a keynote speaker, one-on-one leadership consulting, or a strategic thought partner for future of your organization, make sure to reach out to, to uh, Dante for a free consultation on what services he can offer you and your team. They they can find you at DanteDiBatista.com, and that's D-A-N-T-E-D-I-B-A-T-T-I-S-T-A.com. Is that correct, Dante? That is correct. Thank you. Any other ways you prefer for people to reach out to you or you think that that's the best place to start? It's definitely a great place to start. I'm very accessible. If you go on my website, my email is there. My phone number is there. You can always contact me. I'm very open. I also love social media. Connect with me on LinkedIn. That's probably the platform I use the most. Um, But yeah, if you could follow me on LinkedIn as well, that'd be great. All right, listeners, let's get out there and make our world, our country and our community a better place. When you succeed, we all succeed. And as always, this is a friendly reminder that the left lane is for passing. So speed up or move over.